That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. When you hear that sound, it means you are in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear, with an emphasis on empowering you, me, and we the people to an activist response. My name is Libby Halevi. And I produce and host this podcast because I was one mile from the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island when it happened. I know that with 104 nuclear reactors all over the United States, plus radioactive sites and reactors around the world, whether you can hear those sirens or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Today is Tuesday, January 3rd, 2012, day 302 since the Fukushima tragedy began on March 11th of 2011. And here is the latest nuclear news. We're starting out with Japan. And uh, the governor of Fukushima Prefecture, Yuhei Sato, has demanded the Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, the operator of the crippled nuclear power plant, decommission all of its 10 nuclear reactors in the prefecture. This is the first time somebody in an official capacity that close to the accident has made this demand of the company. He made the demand in a meeting with TEPCO President Toshiro Nishizawa at prefectural government headquarters in the city of Fukushima on December 27th. Here's a quote from uh, Sato. He said, Fukushima Prefecture will build a society that won't rely on nuclear energy and demands that all the reactors in the prefecture be decommissioned and dismantled. In response, the TEPCO head only said, quote, We'll sincerely take measures to ensure safety, pay compensation to those affected by the disaster, and decontaminate tainted areas, end quote. And no timeline for uh, compliance with those promises were made. Uh, now, in Fukushima, word is coming out that the water level is getting lower in the tank adjacent to the number four spent fuel pool at the Fukushima power plant. And it is reducing at a pace five times faster than normal. TEPCO is trying to identify the cause and has not been able to do so yet. At the same time, uh, this is from Fukushima Diary, which is a source we use quite frequently here, um, created by uh, Mokuzuchi. And uh, these are tweets that were sent to him by a former nuclear plant engineer. This is again about the uh, Fukushima uh, number four reactor. And first tweet is, from the picture of TEPCO, they are removing the brace of Reactor 4. If another earthquake hits the plant now, it can't stand the horizontal oscillation. Tweet number two. Points out that the pillar for the pool may weaken the building itself. About Reactor 4, the pillar might help to support the spent fuel pool, but might add too much weight to the building. Tweet three. Without a proper reinforcement, it is almost like a gamble. If another earthquake hits the reactor four, it could collapse the building. And tweet four. Considering the explosion, radiation, heat, and humidity, the constructional material must have been weakened because of oxidation and its leaning. If TEPCO outsourced it all to a construction company, they might not take those risks into consideration. In other words, continuing an ongoing danger from the spent fuel pool at reactor four at Fukushima Daiichi. In a, uh, a whistleblower 
out of TEPCO has leaked uh, some about the actual situation in the Fukushima plant at uh, great personal risk. Um, he left his comments on a Japanese forum, and they have been translated again by Mokuzuchi. Uh, this is a person who said that he took a part of the concrete slag sample. It looks yellow as yellow cake, and that's a reference to yellow cake uranium. Probably the iron part of the core is uranium pellet unreacted. I'm not sure yet because it's still before analysis. It is beyond the maximum reading. It's over 500 millisieverts per hour. My Geiger counter went over the limit. These yellow concrete slags come out from under the building one after one. It means that the container vessel is melting like honeycomb at least, doesn't it? Otherwise, why would metal uranium come out of there? This big metal crystal is extremely radioactive, and it looks like a yellow cake. Can you believe it is out of the container vessel? What, and this person goes on to report, I was scared, so I put it back in the shelter as soon as I took a couple of pictures. And the individual doing this was in complete um, hazmat uh, outfit from the helmet to the gloves to the respirator and still was afraid to even be close to this and did not take it off site. Uh, TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, is on the brink of nationalization according to Japanese government sources. The official reason is that the firm may not be able to handle the massive compensation payments it owes to victims of the meltdown without going bankrupt. Uh, which, of course, sheds a light on that story that I shared previously. But unofficially, the firm has such long-standing ties to antisocial forces, including the Yakuza. These are members of traditional organized crime syndicates in Japan, that some members of the Diet, Japan's national legislature, feel that TEPCO is beyond salvation and needs to be taken over and cleaned up in so many ways. Now, Fukushima is located on the turf of the second largest Yakuza group in Japan, roughly 12,000 members. This is the equivalent of the Mafia. One mid-level executive in the organization, meaning the Yakuza, even defends the role of its members in the Fukushima disaster. The accident wasn't our fault, he said. It's TEPCO's fault. We've always been a necessary evil in the work process. In fact, some of our men, if some of our men hadn't stayed to fight the meltdown, the situation would have been much worse. TEPCO employees and the Nuclear Industry Safety Agency inspectors mostly fled. We stood our ground. And of the 140 workers who have been found to have used fake names when getting jobs doing reconstruction work and are presently unaccounted for, many of these are suspected to have come through the Yakuza. And also in reporting uh, on the nuclear industry, Tomohiko Suzuki who's a freelance reporter, was able to get into the reactor as a cleanup worker under false pretenses, partly by using organized crime connections. According to Suzuki, three of the fabled Fukushima 50, the workers who stayed behind during the most dangerous days of high-level radiation leaks, were local Yakuza bosses and soldiers. So in a choice between TEPCO and the Mafia, the lesser of two villains is the one who's been able to stand up, and that would be the Mafia. An interesting perspective. Uh, one final note out of Japan. A local Japan official was found with a shotgun blast to his chest. Uh, this individual lectured against nuclear power after Fukushima. Uh, Mr. Uemura Yashihiro, who is 64 years old, was a town councilor uh, in Fukushima Prefecture. He was found dead in his car, bleeding from his chest from a shotgun blast. 
Now, he said that he was in his farm and he was going out to keep the crows away with his gun. The police right now assuming it was suicide or a gun accident, but the gun was found outside of the car, so it raises other questions. Uh, Mr. Yashihiro acted against the construction of the Ashihama, nucle- Ashihama nuclear plan of Chubu Electric Power, and after the Fukushima accident, he traveled around Japan to give lectures on the dangers of nuclear power. So that's the news coming out of Japan. Meanwhile, our interview today is of great interest. Um, we have San Onofre whistleblower James Chambers, a licensed nuclear plant operator with, I believe it's 25 years of experience working in this plant, who was retaliated against for raising safety concerns. James, it is great to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat today. Thank you very much, Libby. Wonderful. If you could just speak up, I know you're on a cell phone, and we want to make certain that we hear everything that you have to say. So uh, give us a little okay. background. When did you start working at the San Onofre nuclear reactors? Libby, I started working at San Onofre in October of 1983, and then I was a uh, basically a temporary worker, and then I hired on with Southern California Edison in July of 1985 in their operations department. And uh, where did you go from there? Because that's a long period of time for you to have been with the plant. Oh, well, I was uh, continuously working at San Onofre until July of 2010. And uh, from that point, I have been on long-term disability. Okay, well, let's back up a little bit so we can get you to that point. When did you become aware that there were problems at the plant? And when you became aware, what did you do about it? Well, Libby, working at the plant, and especially as a plant operator, you become aware of problems immediately because they're turned over, they're observed. Um, and, of course, the nuclear uh, facilities do try to learn from their own mistakes. So uh, I did. I was aware of them immediately working at the plant. But at the time, the culture was um, significantly different and there was um, kind of an unwritten rule that no SCE employees would contact the Nuclear Regulatory Commission with any concerns about safety problems. Now, what's the usual protocol that's supposed to be in place if an employee discovers that there's a problem at a nuclear power plant? Well, the normal protocol would be to immediately tell a supervisor or to document the problem in a computer program that tracks problems. The next level uh, in, would be to go to a department that handles employee concerns at the plant. And then after that, one could actually go to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and then file an allegation. Mm-hmm. So that's really uh, on the order of from the, the least significant to the most. Okay, so there was a there was a standard way of dealing with this, and uh, did you attempt to work your way through the levels when you had a complaint, when you saw a problem? Well, okay, well we'll fast forward from the earlier years until uh, until say starting around two thousand nine, okay. and um, yes, I bro- the the things that I saw that were going on that raised uh, significant um, concerns to me as an employee. Uh, and the, the violations that I was witnessing, of course, I mentioned them to m- my uh, direct supervision. I mentioned them to coworkers. 
I documented them in computer programs that track and manage and try to resolve uh, issues at the plant or formulate corrective actions to solve them. So I, I followed all of those, but eventually what happened was I needed to contact um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission because I really felt that my concerns were not adequately and truly being addressed and resolved by uh, the company. And what happened when you contacted the NRC, both their response and any response that you got at the plant? Well, initially when I contacted the NRC, their response was very good. And they were thankful that I was coming forward because remember what I tried to uh, or explained earlier was that um, from the beginning, the, there's a there's an unwritten rule, there uh, a law that's enforced that the employees should not and should never actually contact the NRC. It's kind of a career suicide. If it's known that you've contacted the NRC and you're raising allegations, then your chances of promotion um, are are very very limited. So what kinds of discrimination came down on you most immediately after you took this step to go to the NRC? Well, in, 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 in addition to contacting the Nuclear Regulatory Commission about the allegations of violating Title U.S. Title 42, which is the whistleblower law, um, because literally I was told that the things that I was saying were challenging and even confrontational. I wasn't told that I was being disrespectful. I was being told that the things that I was saying were were challenging and confronting broken systems, trains of thoughts, processes, management processes. So uh, this is what I was responding to. I also did witness other very serious violations, which I um, I documented through the uh, site-wide computer program that tracks problems or deficiencies, and also contacted. Um, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So shortly after that, of course, the, trip, uh, the, the first thing that happens is people stop speaking to you. In and other words, there was, a, there was a, an official shunning of you? I, mean, I, I believe that, yes, people were aware of what I was doing, and they, they stopped speaking to me. That's correct. I was now persona non grata. I was not welcome. Okay. What happened then? And then, well, well then after that, I got the negative performance appraisals saying that the things that I was saying were challenging and even confrontational at the time. Um, in early, mid-2009, uh, San Onofre was already extremely egregious in its violations of nuclear standards. They were really, really way out there. Um, they were an NRC column uh, 2 or column 3 plant at the time, which basically means that the NRC has... Um, certain criteria that they use to gauge the performance of nuclear power plants. And San Onofre was already in trouble. At the time, they were rated as an INPO-3 plant. Uh, INPO-1 is good. INPO-4 is bad. That's a scale, it's a, a scale of 1 to 4. They were an INPO-3. They had the longest-running uh, human performance problems in the history of U.S. nuclear power, the worst industrial safety so this is basically what I was I was responding to the criticism of my being challenging and confrontational by saying, hey, we're in really bad shape. This is the time, the correct time, to challenge and confront broken processes and programs. 
so I find it fascinating that it's because you challenged and confronted the systems. They didn't say that the systems were, were you know, right and you were wrong. It was just that you were speaking out that this, this came down. So at the point that, uh, and you said that it was a, a broken system, ultimately what happened or what was done to you uh, in response to this? Just so we can get a picture of what happened to you as an individual whistleblower before we turn to some of the larger issues. Okay, well, as an individual, as I said, um, I received negative performance appraisals that just that weren't telling me that I was, uh, needing to improve in my work. What the, my performance appraisals were saying that I was a complete failure in certain categories of my job that had to do with um, providing this Title 42 protected speech. There's a thing that's um, that's known at nuclear facilities which is called protected speech. I have the right as a worker to speak up and raise safety concerns. So I got the negative performance appraisals. And uh, and I did I did question those and I did try to uh, try to get a, a change of heart or a change of mind about what was being told to me. Um, I filed my allegations. I went and I went to mediation with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. And then ultimately, I had my vacation canceled the, the week of my 25th company anniversary. 25 years with Southern California Edison. I was told by my supervisor that my vacation that I had requested eight months earlier in the previous year was canceled. And I've never been given a, a correct and truthful explanation as to why my vacation was canceled. So in other words, it was ongoing harassment that came down against you. Oh, sure. And, and, and mine, uh, mine was, you, you say, well, okay, I got retaliated. Many other people had much more serious retaliation than I had. They lost annual bonuses. They lost job mobility. Uh, they also lost vacation. Um, so, it, it, so that is typical for what's going on there. So, I mean, okay, this sounds counterintuitive to somebody who's on the outside because this is a nuclear power plant. This has got, you know, the ultimate power to poison and destroy the immediate environment. I mean, the implications of anything going wrong there are, are devastating. The question being, why is there not a greater concern and attention to safety that would reward those workers who would come forward with this information as opposed to stomp all over you? Well, that's an excellent question. The problem is, Libby, that when you identify safety concerns and when you say major violations, it means that they have to discipline or terminate senior management. And historically, SEE has not been very good with terminating or disciplining senior management because of the fallout, legal fallout from a wrongful termination lawsuit. So it, the the easier path to follow is to beat down the common worker that says there's a problem as opposed to taking care of the problem. They just want to take care of the symptom and not really a problem. So I witnessed people that were intentionally violating procedures. This is senior management at the plant. I witnessed them, and they verbalized to me that they know that they were doing this. It's called a willful violation. And this has really been in the forefront of all of San Onofre's corrective actions. We need to stop the willful violations. That's where the procedure says to do one thing, 
And somebody says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do, which is unsafe. So I witnessed that. And so instead of fixing the problem with the people that violated the procedures, the, the easier thing to do was to just make things difficult for me, the person that actually witnessed them. Mm-hmm. Now, are there... Excuse me, are there other whistleblowers inside San Onofre, and how are they bringing forth their information, or are they too afraid to do so? Well, there's two answers to that. Yes, there are people, there are many other whistleblowers, and some of them are personal friends of mine. Some of them have been um, wrongfully terminated. Others were, um, you know, put through a, a bunch of new requests that they had to perform for their jobs, like a performance improvement plan. You need to get better. You've been raising these safety concerns. So they even jump through additional hoops to keep their jobs. So what happened was there was this culmination of all of these allegations of wrongdoing at the plant and people saying there are all these things that are going on that are wrong. But in response to that, from, from a political standpoint, people are being told, you need to shut up, otherwise the plant is going to get shut down. And you need to stop saying this because it's not making management happy. And so the response was many people saw the fallout of people that raised safety concerns. So they chose not to do it anymore. The boss was upset, management is upset because Joe or Susie raised their hand and said they have a very serious concern that I need to raise, well, suddenly it was viewed as if though those people, instead of helping make the community safer with nuclear power, they really just wanted to make management more comfortable. So that's what happened. Now, you, it, the NRC in early 2010 issued what is referred to as a chilling effects letter stating that the 4,000 nuclear reactor, uh, nuclear workers at the plant were afraid to tell the truth and raise safety concerns for fear of retaliation, as you're telling us now. How common is it for the NRC to issue such a letter, and how much concern should the general public have in response to it? The chilling effects letter that was issued in early, 10, uh, in early 2010 is, is not something that is seen that often. And uh, I don't have exact numbers on it, but this is very, very unusual. And the reason why this is serious is because, number one, any nuclear licensee that is issued a chilling effects letter by the NRC is going to spend a massive amount of money, maybe 50 to $100 million dollars, to try to fix the problem. It's tremendous. So it, it, this is not a letter that is generated very easily by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission because, it, it, uh, because of the financial, the negative financial effects to the nuclear licensee, the person that actually runs the plant. So these are not common uh, that they're issued. And the reason why the general public should be very concerned in response to seeing that they were issued this letter, is that the workers, the actual workers at the power plant are afraid to tell the truth. And when anyone at a nuclear power plant or a nuclear facility is afraid to tell the truth, then um, the, the protection of the health and safety of the public is significantly diminished. 
Wow, that's really chilling information. Just one more, and then we'll go to some some questions on uh, the open mic. But uh, how many allegations, I mean, we're just out of 2011 now, but looking at 2010, how many allegations of wrongdoing did the NRC receive from plant workers in 2010? And how many did the next worst plant have? And what's significant about this? Well, the total number of all allegations received in 2010 was at a all-time high of 62. Wow. It had never been achieved before. And the nearest was uh, Palo Verde, which is outside of Phoenix in Arizona, and they were at 19. <gasps> so, yeah, so... That's, we're three, time, three times as bad. We're overachievers in all the bad areas. That's correct. Unfortunately, they are uh, notorious in all of the bad areas. Wow. Well, I'd like to open this up to any questions. I have a zillion more, but if there's anybody on the line, if you've muted yourself, you can unmute yourself by hitting star six and ask a question of James Chambers, who is a uh, whistleblower, uh, a licensed nuclear power plant operator who worked at San Onofre for 25 years before being retaliated against for raising safety concerns. I have a question. Okay. If you could speak up, please. Who's this? Hi, this is Eileen from New Jersey. Hi, what's your question? I have a comment and a question. First of all, I find uh, nuclear power challenging and confrontational. You know, it's, it's challenging because we don't know what to do with the waste and confrontational because it could just destroy the earth more than any other danger we face here. And um, my question for James is, why on earth would anybody make a willful violation? Well, that's an excellent question. Why would somebody make a willful violation? Uh, the, the willful violations that have occurred at San Onofre were because workers thought it would be easier if they didn't perform certain steps and procedures, and um, the, or they did not want to perform that work, so they just actually said or signed for work as being performed. And because ultimately what happens is, yeah, that's correct, they're lying. They're lying, and uh, there's some ultimate rationalization that goes on in their mind that what they're doing or their intelligence is greater than a written procedure or a regulation, or a rule, or a law. So that is the problem that occurs. They're not taking any money by doing it this way. That's correct. Ego. They're just yes. It's just ego. They're violating procedures uh, because they 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 want to accomplish a goal. They have some goal that they want to accomplish, or the, an endpoint, and so so they get there, but they haven't done it correctly. And um, and they've just ignored all of the warnings that have come before that, the verbal warnings, which is in nuclear power plants, procedures must be followed. They must be done step by step or the, the overriding or the overarching um, purpose of procedures must be followed if there are not step by step um, procedures that are signed for. Thank you so much. Are you welcome? So, James, um, just to tie this up, where are you right now? Are you still working at the plant? No. Um, 
after the retaliation started, I started to have health problems. And, of course, uh, I, was, I was sick, uh, high blood pressure, couldn't sleep, the headaches. I had to go to the hospital and have a sigmoidoscopy performed because my doctor thought I may have colon cancer. And um, I'm, I'm a social person, and I've always been a social person, and, and I have many, many friends that still work at the plant and uh, people that I can tr- truly call as friends. And uh, so essentially um, I was having a physical manifestation of the stress in my body. Mm-hmm. And so um, after I went to mediation with the company and my mediation failed, the uh, the mediator who has spent his whole life performing mediations between utilities and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, excuse me, utility employees and the utilities on behalf of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission said, my mediation was the first one he had ever seen fail. He couldn't believe it. He threw his arms up in the air. He broke, he violated all the mediator rules uh, because they're supposed to act as a mediator, not input. And... Um, so, uh, so, so you're no longer at the plant now, but you're still in contact with other people within who are working there. Yes, my doctor uh, would not give me permission to return to work for fear that I would have a heart attack. Wow. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm still in uh, contact with workers that are there, other workers that have been retaliated against and terminated, and also other employees that actually resigned from their positions, very, very lucrative positions, by the way, at the nuclear power plant. So um, I still find out what's going on at the plant. Well, we will continue to source back to you for further information. Uh, I have a story coming up in a moment that's, that's going to link directly in with this. But, uh, James, if if we, the citizens of Southern California and those beyond who listen to this podcast, can be of support to you or assist you in uh, getting word out about the truth of what's happening at San Onofre, what might we do to be of service to you in this? Well, really, the best thing to do is for anybody that lives in the area of San Onofre, they need to immediately contact the city council members of the city of San Juan Capistrano, Dana Point, and um, San Clemente. San Clemente, San Juan Capistrano, and Dana Point. They need to contact them and voice their concerns because the, the plant just isn't allowed to run on its own. It has to be given permission and the the local um, cities, they have to be in agreement with San Onofre continuing to run. And that also includes the state parks and the California Highway Patrol and the San Diego Sheriffs and Camp Pendleton. So there are many other people that are involved in the say-so uh, as to whether or not San Onofre continues to run. They must be in agreement. So the best thing for people to do is continue to place uh, pressure upon those local cities, and then also on a um, on, on a statewide issue. Uh, call Sacramento, call congressmen and senators, and say, you know what? There's something bad going on at these nuclear power plants, and we don't feel safe. That is the best thing to do. Wonderful. Well, we will continue to support that, and we will continue to be in touch with you, James, to um, get any further insights you have and any further leads on uh, what is truly going on in San Onofre. And thank you so much for being our interview today. Feel free to stay on the line till the end of the program, the podcast. Uh, I think you'll enjoy the rest of the information. Uh, that thank was. You, 
That was James Chambers, a San Onofre whistleblower and proud of it. Uh, the related story I'm talking about, I was going to save this till the end, but it's perfect for now, and that is there is currently an initiative that is to be placed on the ballot. We're gathering signatures to place it on the ballot for November of 2012. This initiative would force the closure of San Onofre and Diablo Canyon based on the fact that they do not have any safe storage of the radioactive waste that they do create. If you wish to participate in this, there is a great website called sananofresafety.org, and Onofre is O-N-O-F like Frank, R-E, sananofresafety.org. There's a button there for California Initiative, and if you click on that, you can download the petition and print it out. You need to print it on two sides or have two sheets that are they're stapled to each other. You get seven signatures from registered voters uh, who are all in the same county of California and mail it into the address down at the bottom. That's it. We need to make this viral in an analog way because it cannot be signed online. It has to be signed uh, physically. And as you just heard, um, San Onofre has many dangers that have nothing to do with an earthquake. Um, so please go ahead. Go to sananofresafety.org. Get your copies of that petition. Get them signed. Send them in. And do it all over again. Thank you. So moving on to uh, further news, we're going to look at what's happening in the U.S. And let's just say that the natural world is reacting to the radiation and not in a good way. There have been the deaths of many ringed seals in Alaska. It's considered an unusual mortality event. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration declared that the recent deaths of ring seals in Alaska uh, is an unusual mortality event. Since mid-July, more than 60 dead and 75 diseased seals, most of them ring seals, have been reported in Alaska, and reports continue to come in. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has also identified diseased and dead walruses. Uh, there have also been reports of uh, sea turtles washing up on Vancouver Island, uh, which are also the early signs of potential radiation poisoning. Now, the tests on all of these animals indicate that a virus was not the cause, and also we have reports that walruses and ring seals have been uh, suffering similar symptoms in Russia and in Canada. While it is not clear if the disease events are related, the timing and location of the disease suggests the possible transmission between the populations or shared exposure to an environmental cause. Um, they have skin sores on their uh, flippers or face, patchy hair loss, labored breathing, and appear lethargic. These are the same symptoms that show up in human beings who have been exposed to radiation. Uh, necropsies, which I believe is the same as an autopsy on an animal, have found abnormal growths in the brain, undersized lymph nodes, and compromised immune systems. Um, all, according to Dr. Stephen Raverty, who's a veterinary pathologist uh, in British Columbia, they're screening for 18 recognized pathogens, but all lab results have come back negative. Uh, we think defects in the skin are allowing pathogens to migrate into the animals and that the defects in the skin may be caused by exposure to radiation. Uh, further information on animals. This is out of Chernobyl. 
this came as part of a uh, five-part seminar, Chernobyl to Fukushima, that was held at San Francisco State University. And radiation biologist Natalia Manzarova was talking about her experiences in Chernobyl as a cleanup liquidator. And about the animals, she said, the dose of radiation exposure was so high that a lot of the animals who were exposed to it just went mad. They were just crazy. Dogs that were left in the zone went to the forest. Foxes and wolves started attacking people who were working in the zone. In fact, even hogs in the wild became mad and also started attacking. We were going from Chernobyl to where we were staying overnight in Pripyat, and one hog attacked our car with such force that we almost went into a ditch with the car. That's what was reported from Fukushima, and now there are reports that there are uh, there are suspected attacks taking place by what is called in Japan a raccoon dog, which is a dog that has much the markings of a raccoon. It is a wolf dog species, and uh, they're scavengers, they're predators, um, they are wild in the Fukushima area, potentially dangerous, and according to a former editor of the Japan Times Weekly, uh, Yoichi Shimas. Uh, Shimatsu, uh, he was interviewed on the Jeff Rents radio program. Uh, he said, I think the mutation of these things in the wild of Fukushima, now that they're left alone, is very dangerous. Without farmers there to shoot them, these things will really flourish. They are primitive dogs, not raccoons. They are fearsome animals and are dangerous. I think there is a future threat. Again, the Pandora's box is open, otherwise known as it's not nice to fool with Mother Nature. And one last piece of news from Japan, uh, the um, uh, natural world, that uh, there are tree leaves reported to be, that were gigantic after Chernobyl. Again, this is from the same Chernobyl of Fukushima uh, uh, seminar that took place. Uh, the plants, the pine trees, the evergreen trees um, bloomed with a lot of blooms from a single bud shooting out like a broom. It's referred to as witch's brooms. The seeds and leaves were gigantic. Now, according to the U.S. EPA and also Chernobyl biologists, radiation stress has caused changes in tree growth patterns in Chernobyl. This formation of witch's broom, a condition upon which too many shoots form on a single bough. Um, the Chernobyl biologist said they've lost the internal signals that, say, make a Christmas tree taper upward towards the top. Instead, they don't seem to know which way is up. So that was in the past out of Chernobyl. Now, this news out of Fukushima, again, according to Fukushima Diary, that there have been discovered of monster-sized potatoes shaped like giant hands. Uh, there have been pictures of mutated vegetables. Many of them have gone, quote-unquote, gigantic. And a repeat of reports that after the atomic bomb of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, vegetables grew huge or became mutated. We are seeing the exact same examples happening in Fukushima now. Uh, and we have no reports on how much radiation has been coming towards the United States, nor any reports of mutated uh, vegetables here. But it's not impossible, especially here on the West Coast, where we grow so much of the country's and the world's food. Now, regarding radiation, um, a few things. Um, in terms of natural health, I always try and give a holistic healing tip uh, here. And here's one to think about. We have now gone, uh, we are coming up on 10 months since Fukushima. 
And because of that, uh, we have a need to really check expiration dates on fish and any Japanese-sourced products that are making their way to the United States. Now, in some instances, foods have been packaged a long time ago, so it's not a problem. But we need to know when things were packed because anything that comes from uh, March 10, 2011 or before is going to be safe. But if it's out of Japan or if it is a Pacific-sourced fish and it was packaged after March 11th, you need to be aware of this fact and you need to take it into consideration before you buy that food and take it into your body or feed it to your loved ones because the potential is there for food to have been contaminated by the radiation. Um, We've had previous reports on nuclear hot seat about the radiation in radiation levels in food in Japan, and we're not currently testing here in the United States for anything that's coming over from Japan. So uh, be prudent. Figure out when and where your food is sourced, and when in doubt, do not take it into your body. Uh, for people who wish to have an activist response, uh, one of the best sites that I follow and is really a, a cornerstone in this entire movement for citizen-based information spreading about uh, the, the effects of Fukushima and the nuclear industry, ENE News. It stands for Energy News, but it's E-N like Nancy, E-News.com. Uh, it's a great in-gathering for daily updates on reports from around the world on what's happening in the nuclear news. But they have now created a special new site for the posting of citizen activist radiation monitoring. Uh, you can get that information, you can get the link to it by going to the Nuclear Hot Seat page on Facebook and just clicking on that link. And if you have radiation monitoring data from your own uh, your own uh, sources, you can post it there. You can also see what's happening literally around the world. One of the reports that I picked up on today came from Enviro Reporter, um, which is Michael, and my apologies, Michael, I'm forgetting your last name right now, but Michael in Santa Monica is offering radiation readings. He had them from where he was for Christmas in southwest, excuse me, southeast Michigan and reported that the Michigan rain was hot. There was a rainout because the um, uh, the jet stream overhead, which is carrying radiation particles from Japan, coincided with rain and there was a rainout in southeast Michigan on the 30th of December with the ra- background radiation was 561% higher than normal. So if you wish to keep up on this information, certainly Enviro Reporter is an excellent place to go, enviroreporter.com, or the news site that is available on ENE News. A final thought today, and this is from Harvey Wasserman, who posted on nuclearfree.org. Quote, as it has been from the start, nuclear power is a ward of the state. Nowhere on earth are the builders held fully responsible for their mess. The Japanese government has just coughed up a tip of the iceberg $13 billion bailout for Fukushima's owner, the Tokyo Electric Power Company. Hundreds of billions of dollars are yet to come. Either TEPCO goes bankrupt or the government takes it over beforehand, as we heard in the earlier story. Either way, the public pays financially and with its health and that of its children and I will add, and their children and the children of those children. So it will be everywhere nukes are built, including the U.S., 
where the 1957 Price-Anderson Act still limits owner liability in the wake of a nuclear catastrophe. So, guys, we've got to get these turned off and uh, dismantled, and then we'll figure out what to do with the radiation. Again, remember, if you go to org, you can download the petition to get this on the ballot in uh, November. And um, we need to do that because we've got to take all the actions we can. In closing, this has been Nuclear Hot Seat for January 3rd, 2012. It has been 302 days since Fukushima happened. You multiply that by three leaking reactors. You've got 906 nuclear leak days. We are well beyond Chernobyl. Uh, this is the worst nuclear accident. This is the worst industrial accident that has ever happened on the planet. Now, in terms of Nuclear Hot Seat, you can always find us and links to this and previous programs by going to the nuclear, the, going to the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat group page. Uh, and I am updating NuclearHotSeat.com. Hopefully that will be back in the loop by next week. Uh, we are also available in iTunes uh, under the podcast section, and you can subscribe for free. So you never need miss a single podcast. Uh, just go in, hit the subscribe button. It's very easy to do. Go to iTunes, search out Nuclear Hot Seat. Now, if you have a lead to a story or information to share, you can join with our growing army of on-the-ground reporters around the world, which reminds me, we have an on-the-ground report from the East Coast. Um, one of our reporters, Eileen, just got an email asking her to contact her representative on the governor, in Governor Cuomo's office uh, not to support an amendment to the Constitution, removing the stat. Uh, um, and what, oh, uh, the New York Council is taking a vote tomorrow on whether or not to support the amendment to the Constitution, removing the status of personhood from corporations and all their money from election process. If you live in New York, please tell your council member to support Resolution 1172. And if you know one who lives there, know someone who lives there, please message them tonight. Uh, this is January 3rd, so please do it tonight. The vote is going to take place tomorrow, January 4th, and this is a way of reversing the personhood status of corporations and their money from the electoral process, which will only help the rest of us. So if you've got information on the ground, please send me a message on the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page. I'll get back to you. This is Libby Halevi of Heart Street Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call now. Do not... Go back to sleep. Be safe, be well, and I will speak with you again next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.